Welcome to In the Demo, a show about the stories that get told about groups, how those stories got made, what we think those stories get wrong, and why it matters. You hosts, Farah Bostic is the founder and head of research and strategy of The Difference Engine, a strategic insights consultancy focused on helping business leaders make decisions. Adam Piano, author and brand consultant and managing director of brand strategy at Arizona State University. You are now in the demo. Okay, so what the hell is going on in strategy, Twitter, strategy, LinkedIn? Like, people are picking fights with no one who wants to fight them. <laughs> like, that is that is what I, I am observing. Can I even ask you a, like a bigger picture question? Have you, yes. do you, why would you want to be in a strategy fight about, is this an insight? Like, why do people, why is that a thing? Why are we fighting over methodologies and outputs? Who gives a, who, I mean. So I uh, somewhat infamously wrote a piece once uh, called, there's no such thing as insights. And, and that is partly because I'm a pedant and um, insights is grammatically incorrect. Um, <laughs> I think it has become uh, grammatically accepted, though, by our subgroup. Uh, it has. And, and I have, from time to time, when I'm talking to someone that I don't think is smart enough for me to argue about it, I just go ahead and, like, fine. In, fine, insights. Like, whatever. You know what you're, I mean. You're um, a scary person to debate with, Farah, I, I have to admit. <laughs> you bring the thunder. I was state champion at debate. <laughs> so, and I went to nationals at debate. And I so, goddamn right. Um, yeah. <laughs> but the, the thing about it is, I think that there are a lot of things that brands are able to build campaigns on that are not especially insightful. They just observed that people do a thing and then they put it in the ad. Like, it's fine. You know, uh, Russell Davies talked, used to talk, I think he still does talk about noticing a lot. And I think noticing yeah. is a big job for strategists of any industry, like noticing that your customers are behaving a certain kind of way, noticing a, that culture has taken a turn, noticing that this is the new style out there on the street. Like that is nine tenths of the job in many respects, noticing that the sales went up or down, noticing that distribution right. is up or down. All of that is the big part of the job. Having some kind of insight into it yeah. is the thing that I think most strategists, sorry, folks, you don't have it. Like you don't, you're too lazy to do it. You're not interested enough in the stuff you work on to develop it. And the point I made in that piece was insight is something you develop. It is a deeper level of understanding. It is a quality you come to possess. You do not have it about everything. And it takes work to get there. It mm. is not a thing you find like the idea of like, we found some insights in the research is not what research does. And it's not what you do when you read a research report. You don't find some insights in it. You read some data, you see some findings, but like <laughs> the, the insight is a process. And so that is the only fight I'm interested in having apart from like, you know, and again, sorry, Conrad, I'm just going to keep flogging this horse, but like, at South by many, many years ago, poor Conrad Lisko is up there back in his RGA days saying like, we had this insight that people like to listen to music while they exercise. And I laughed. <laughs> like, I laughed in the hall because like, that's not an insight, my man. Like that was true. 
Yeah, like the very first Sony Walkman ads are of a woman in like a leotard and leg warmers. We knew that that's what it was for. It was always for that. People, <laughs> gyms play music. Jazzercise has to do with the jazz. <laughs> 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 and it wasn't really jazz, friends. It was like pop music. But like the, the, this is, this is what drives me crazy is, is I think a lot of strategists want to elevate what they do yeah, to something that is either way more important than it actually is. Sorry. Or something ineffable. And I personally dislike, like like Crowley and Good Omens. I dislike the ineffable, and so that is uh, that is the fight I'm willing to have. But I'm not willing to have a fight over whether Mark Ritson or Byron Sharp are right. Like they're both right. It depends on the situation. There's so much. It depends in all the stuff that we do. It, being on the strategy side now for ten years, fully, I think when I started, it was. Oh, I, yeah, I want to do that. I want to make it sound smart. I want people to know I know what the hell I'm talking about. I want to explain, over-explain, over-engineer 97 mm-hmm. slides to get to one point that I'm going to call an insight. Yes. I don't care if it's an insight or not, but I need, the, I need, in that case, the client now, my own brand, to know this is the thing that we're going to base your communications on. Call it whatever you want. Who gives you? Who yeah. cares? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But that's like, the part, I think the two sides of the, it's not two different sides. There's two different fights going on. There's still the fight from people about doing that, of elevating strategy and making strategy sound worthy of the cost and the investment. Mm-hmm. But then there's the other side that's like, I think um, the piece we're going to talk about today where it's like, hey, you guys are over-engineering this. You're overthinking it. You're creating bubbles. You are insulating strategy and the advertising and communications communities from the real world, which is also bullshit to a point. Like, I mean, I don't know how you want to jump into this, this piece we're going to talk about, but I can't fight both those fronts. They're, they're both somewhat true. And I don't think either one is worth arguing about really, but I feel like we have to take it on as part of our work because it directly kind of bumps into some of the research we've spent the last year doing. Yes. If you are a listener to this podcast and do not work in advertising and branding, I, I apologize uh, for what you're about to endure. We might need to make like an explainer episode where we just quickly lay out for people. This is what yeah, this is I mean, strategy works. <laughs> well, good luck with that. Um, I, I think one of, you know, just just like the, the bit of background here is obviously – uh, I think one of the reasons that, that we get along is we're strategists who used to be creatives. And so we've been responsible for coming up with the idea that actually becomes the ad. And we've been responsible for coming up with a strategy that should fuel the idea that becomes the ad. And we've both been responsible for conducting the research that leads to the strategy that becomes exactly the idea right. that becomes the ad. So I, I think we've both kind of seen the whole assembly line. Exactly. And, uh, you know, I, I, the thing about the way advertising agencies traditionally have, well, you know, traditionally for a long time have worked is that the client comes to the agency saying, we want to sell more Lucky Strike (laughs) if you're a Mad Men fan. And, um, but hey, we've got all these constraints. The government is telling us what we can and can't say. And, you know, we've maxed out this particular audience or whatever. And so what are you going to do for us? And the agency goes off and has a think about it. (laughs) And the process of going off and having a think about it is known as strategy. (laughs) 
<laughs> and some of some of the time, if you're a resourced agency that has the time and has the skills and has the strategy team, used to be called planning, some places still is called planning, they might go and either commission some original research or they might go look at some syndicated research. They might go do some man-on-the-street interviews or uh, in-store intercepts, talk to people while they're about to buy a pack of cigarettes and ask them why they're buying the pack that they're buying. Yeah, um, You see scenes like this in Mad Men where like brooding Don Draper is at the bar and asks the waiter what kind of cigarettes he likes and why he likes them. And, you know, that kind of talk to the cab driver approach also is kind of part of just like you're trying to gather a kind of sense of the gestalt, like what is going on out there amongst the types of consumers we're trying to attract. And then you try to turn that into something that can inspire creative people to do creative stuff, right? Like, who are you talking to about what, why, what do we want them to do? And what do you have to do? Because the client says we have to. And like, that's the basics of a, of a creative brief. Yeah. In that model, that's a strategist conducting that conversation and turning that into the the components of the creative brief that goes to the creative team. Exactly right. Part of the debate is the creatives I know that I consider the most in, insightful, I hate to use that word, or the, you know, just the most naturally good at creative. I think the debate is, does strategy have to come from strategists? And no, you know, Don Draper was... was not a strategist, although he applied strategic thinking on that show. There's a lot of creatives who take a brief and then they go, oh, I'm going to also talk to that the waiter in my restaurant and ask him about cigarettes. And mm-hmm. I'm building on what the brief says with this other piece of information. And here's a new idea. And like, yes, great. Mm-hmm. That, that is also applies unless we're trying to get to quantitative data that um, can't be derived from a single conversation. I think that's right. I think one of the, one of the challenges of what has happened in advertising in terms of getting to a creative strategy, which is different from the business strategy, but a creative strategy is a little bit of a clash of cultures by agencies who are either more creatively driven, which usually simply means the founders of the agency were themselves copywriters or art directors. They value the creative process more than they value anything else. (laughs) Um, And that is their their taste in great creative is their differentiator for up to about 40 years. And then after about 40 years, every creative agency is no longer seen as all that creative. Um, that, right. That's the that's the longest run, right? The, the shortest run is like 10, <laughs> um, maybe. Yeah, shorter sometimes. Um, and sometimes shorter. And then you have more kind of like account services driven agencies. There was a hot minute in the 90s, I would say, in the early aughts, where you had a handful of independent shops that were strategy-driven mm. creative agencies, but there were so few of them. Planners didn't start agencies. Planners went to work in agencies. They might co-found an agency with a creative director, but that was a creatively-driven agency. Some of that is because in a lot of agencies, strategy reports through creative. In like, some, yeah. You know, that they, they don't have, they don't sit in their own. They don't have like a lot of agencies don't have a chief strategy officer or whatever, a head of, you know, big agency head of strategy. That person reports to the head of creative in some agencies. In some agencies, they report it through accounts. And like, in which case, this isn't more of a client service thing that we're providing. And I also wrote a piece years ago about like, I think I called it, um, the siren and the muse, like planners and agencies have to serve these two purposes. One is siren to the clients, muse to the creative team. Like we're supposed to make the clients feel like we're really smart. And 
make the creative team feel like they have everything they need in order to be inspired. And one of the things that I think has happened is you have a debate between how evidence-based and data-driven as a planner you need to be in order to be taken seriously by clients, and then how creative you need to be in order to be taken seriously by creatives, but not so creative that you have stepped on their ability to be creative. Yeah. Yeah. That, I mean, that is, that's a third debate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Don't put thought starters in the brief is like the famous third rail of like, but what if I want to help explain how this could be legged out? Well, and my, my technique for a long time was like, here are five bad ideas. If I can come up with five bad ideas, I'm sure you, brilliant creative person that you are, can come up with at least <laughs> one really good one. Um, and, you know, that was fine. But but I think, you know, even the idea of like, can, a, can strategy come from anywhere? Sure. Yes. But it takes work. Like, and I think this is where we get to Richard Huntington's piece on on the work website, which is fundamentally about what kind of work do you need to do to be good at strategy in 2023, 2024. And he he has a general kind of brand with the respect to the types of things that he writes. It's a little bit bullshy, as uh, the Brits might say. And, you know, wants to sort of put a stake in the ground, wants to sort of pick a fight. And I think he's successful in some respects, and then kind of like, skids to a stop right before the important part. <laughs> um, and then the reason we wanted to talk about it is he reserves in here a whole section talking about the use of generations as lazy segmentation, essentially. And so I know that we've talked about segmentation before. You can go back and listen to the episode that we did with Paul Soldero, where yeah, we talked about how segmentations work. And, you know, you can listen to the the conversation that we had with Rose Cameron about how, you know, advertising and marketers have approached understanding generations in the past. But I think that this is something that is still present and seems to be, I mean, even based on our last conversation <laughs> with like ads that are explicitly invoking generations now, it has kind of metastasized in the advertising business and amongst marketers. And so it does have to be dealt with. But again, I feel like he kind of skids to a halt right before he tells you how to deal with it. So we can sort of talk about the piece. Yeah. So I have a first question for you. He does want to put a stake in the ground and pick a fight. Who does he, who do you think he's picking the fight with? I've read this 20 times and I'm thinking like, okay, I see what he's I see that he is sticking his chest out, mm -hmm. but who is he thrusting it towards? The opening line is marketing is in desperate need of a reality check. Who would disagree yeah. with that? <laughs> I mean, that's a good question. I mean, obviously, the, the marketers as a word is a very easy paper tiger, right? Like we can just sort of say marketers and that encompasses a host of sins and because it's marketing and because we have a cultural sort of pejorative association with marketing, which is hilarious, because this is America. I mean, I know well, and also is writing in England, but he is, this is published in Wark, which is a journal for marketers and strategic thinkers and advertisers. Yeah. So it's a little yeah. it's not like it's in the Times taking a swipe at marketers where. No, but it's, you know, everybody is in the zeitgeist. Right. So th that sure. I think is like it's easy to just sort of use marketers and you know who you are is kind of the <laughs> insinuation. Yeah. But to your point, it is in work. And work is for marketers and market researchers and strategists. And so this is meant to be like, hey, you, reader of this website, reader of this 
this resource, maybe the problem's you. Like you're going to want to read this to figure out if you need a reality check or not. So some of it is just like, it's a little clickbaity, but like <laughs> there, there is a point that he, I think is also getting to, which is a thing that I'm mulling over quite a bit as well in, in, in our work is I think that maybe what he's, he's like gesturing at is that there is a difference between marketing leaders, business leaders in general, who are strategic and in touch with what's going on in their category and in their consumer marketplace and the culture, all of that. And then marketers and business leaders who are more kind of operational. And what I think is also happening in the in ad land and marketing land, as he puts it, that there's like a there's been a, I don't know, 15, 20 year run of becoming more quote unquote data driven. Yeah. But the data is is digital analytics by and large. It's how many clicks, how many views, how many shares. It's and 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 this is the the important distinction to draw is it's not business analytics, right? Like the marketing director does not have a login to the BI system, the right. business intelligence system that the company is running. They don't have a login to the CRM. They they don't know what the lead gen process is. They're not in the sales team. Or at and least so, at least the marketing director that is interfacing with the agency in a lot of cases is not sharing that data. What they're talking about in those meetings is top level attention metrics, like clicks, upstream yes. metrics, and not the downstream results. I think the people he's calling out are those people that are really focused on that front yeah. end. Of- but, but I'm also just going to go ahead and say, like, I'm going to take a stand on this. Fortune 500 companies, marketing directors don't have access to that data. There's a reason they're not sharing it. They don't have it. It yeah. exists possibly in the organization, but it does not exist in their part of the organization. And they are, for better or worse, walled off from the operational part of the business. Now, there is a trend to get rid of the CMO role and to put the head of marketing under ops. And so maybe that will give them more access to that data. Frankly, I doubt it. But like, you're right, regardless, that that kind of information is not being shared with the ad agency. And all of this is this like downstream effect of like the CEO doesn't trust the CMO to be strategic about the business. The CMO doesn't trust their agencies to be strategic about the business. Like, well, then what are you doing? <laughs> right. <laughs> I yeah, think three degrees always... of that separation. All of a sudden, it's like we have three interns running a campaign that's. And, and we're just making kind of irrelevant stuff and hoping that it works. Or we're doing naive things. And and here I will give a quick aside about Snoop Dogg and the solo stove, <laughs> which yeah. is like, it's a stunt. And the thing about stunts is, stunts create a situation in which you have to do what they call marketing the marketing. And so it's great that you've got Snoop doing this. It's funny. It's great. Drove some search results. But I didn't hear about it till after it was dead and the guy had gone and fallen on his sword about it. Like, I think one of the problems here <laughs> might be no one heard about it, really. Like, okay, you saw but an uptick also, in search results. I think another problem with it is I don't think it's a good product. You can advertise the bejesus out of it, get it in front of me. I don't I don't think there's a huge market need for a stove that doesn't smoke. Like, I think they misrepresent I mean, <laughs> the market scale for that product. And then the CEO is in this situation where he has to quit because Snoop Dogg didn't drive sufficient sales. I think people look at it and they go like, what on earth is this? So I know several people who have a solo stove and they have it for a few reasons. One is I think there's a logic that like no smoke, no sparks. And so it is a safer outdoor fire pit 
than a traditional one that's extremely open and just the logs are fully exposed and all that kind of thing. That's one one version of it. And so the people yeah. that I know who fit that value prop are doing so because they live in brownstones in Brooklyn and have a back garden and they don't want to freak out the neighbors. So if there's no smoke, no one's calling the fire department. <laughs> This used to happen to us when we would grill in our backyard in Brooklyn. People would call the fire department and we'd have to be like, come through. But all we're doing is grilling burgers. (laughs) Would you like one? Safely outside. Would you like one, sir? But the other part of it is a design thing. Like the people, some of the other people I know who own a solo stove or have owned a solo stove are frankly designers and they love the look of it. I don't know what they were trying to accomplish with Snoop. And that I don't know, like, exactly who the audience they were trying to garner was. But if you're just trying to get awareness, which is a perfectly reasonable objective for advertising, then the thing is, you have to do it at a scale that gets awareness. This kind of idea of we'll we'll do a stunt and people will hear about it is a time honored nonsense idea. (laughs) Like agents, again, it shows up occasionally as like little plot points in Mad Men of like, we're going to have two women get into a fight over a product and then the news will cover it. And then, you know, that's how we'll get around the fact that there's no media budget. And instead, the two actors that they hire to get into a fight get arrested. (laughs) Right. (laughs) (laughs) You know, this is, (laughs) this is literally a plot point in Mad Men. But the, you know, the, the thing that happened there is a thing that happens a lot with marketers, which is they also tend to be kind of term limited. Like the 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 tenure goes up and down. The lowest it's been that I've seen is like the average average tenure of a chief marketing officer is 18 months. And then the longest I've seen it is like 34 months is the average. Yeah. And so like somewhere between a year and a half to three years to make a mark that gets you your next CMO job because you will be fired or forced to forced to resign. And Personally, I think a lot of this is you're not connecting them to the business strategy. And so they're over there just like trying to build awareness or whatever, trying to do something cool, trying to get attention, or they are trying to maximize their ROI on the marketing budget that they have, or they're doing some mix of the two. I think a lot of brands have discovered you can't really do a mix of the two. You got to pick one, pick a lane. But if it doesn't connect to the business realities, not even the business objectives, but the business realities, then like meaning like logistics, supply chain, you know, distribution, all of that kind of stuff, then like it's irrelevant. But this, I think, is the CEO's fault. And I don't mean like a specific CEO, CEOs culturally their fault because they don't hire CMOs to be strategic partners in the business. They see marketing as an expense and that's basically it. And so they're left to go run amok. And here's why I object to the idea just a little. I mean, I don't object to it. It's true. Strategy could come from anywhere. Here's why I call BS on creatives telling me that they think they can be strategic. And that's because if there's any group of people who's going to spend less time getting to know the customer, in most agencies, it's the creative team. They want to be given a brief that they feel like they can do something with, and they want to go off and you know, uh, we swear on this podcast, right? Um, have a fuck about and then come up with an idea. Like I, I go back to the, like, uh, I have this book somewhere, the DNAD copy book with like Neil French's thing in there about like, I receive a brief from some junior account executive and I set it aside and I leave the agency and I go have a heavy lunch and shoot some pool and drink a bunch. And then I come back to the agency and I lay on the sofa in my office and I have a little nap. And when I wake up, whatever ideas are still in my head, I write them down. Okay. Um, <laughs> cool story, Neil. 
<laughs> also a man who famously does not believe that women can be creative or funny. But like, this is the problem culturally with ad agencies is because they have been sort of historically told since the 80s, really, since the late 80s, let's be real, you don't know anything about our business. And we're not going to we're not going to educate you about our business. We don't want to pay for you to get smart about our business. Yes, exactly. We just want you to make some ads and then place them. And so that is where I just kind of go. It's a nice idea. But I have worked in enough agencies and consulted to enough agencies where I've literally been told by creative directors and account directors who have worked on that piece of business for years that they do not pay attention to anything happening in the culture that would be relevant to that brand's target audience. And they're shocked when I come in going like, oh, have you seen all these stories about blah, 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 blah? And they're like, how are you finding this? And I'm like, it's just in the New York Times. I noticed it because you hired me to work on this project with <laughs> Which you. Which is, by the way, your hometown paper. Yeah, um. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Like, just flick through the Times and you can find an article about whatever, what what new moms are freaked out about this year. Right. And like, use that for your for your diaper ads. Like, but this is just not what they do. And I think one of the problems that Richard's trying to address is how do you start to do it? Yeah. Because this like the point that he is making is I think working on on two two sides. One is not just not grounded in the reality of what consumers are doing and feeling and thinking. And the other side of it is becoming extremely dependent on what I might think of as kind of tertiary data. Like the clicks, the engagement, the likes, the the SEO results, all of that kind of stuff, and not actually being thoughtful about all the stuff you can't measure because yeah. it's not in your CRM system or reflected in, you know, the easy click-based social behaviors. So I don't know, 26 minutes in, is that enough preamble? I, I hope. I mean, I think what <laughs> his his premise I don't disagree with this premise that there's this bubble and companies are stuck and marketers are stuck in this bubble. Like, okay. But to yeah. your... I mean, it literally says it's a land of artifice. Right? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's not just in a bubble. It is a fake bubble. It is a place, a bubble with no connection at all to reality. Like bubbles we talk about often are like, well, there's this one experience that is real. And I'm wrapping it in a bubble. Right, right. This is like a fantasy bubble. Like it's a bubble in which no reality transpires. So that's where I, as I reread and reread this, that's where I disagreed because they are in a reality, but the reality is focused on the part they can control and understand. And that for the agency that they can, that they have to know, which is, you mentioned earlier, like understanding supply chain and understanding these parts of the business that drive results or change margin. Like, it is a weird thing for him to say, I understand, yes, we need to figure out the cultural relevancy or the cult what's happening outside of the business to drive change in the business or the way people receive it out in the world. Yes, but he's almost arguing that the construct of the business is fake and caring about it is a waste. And in, when he starts to get into solutions or the three major areas that he sees as problems, it's he's, I say, well... They have to be, what else should they be focused on? They should be purely outwardly facing focused and not focused, not understanding what the business is. To, like, that's, that doesn't make any sense. I, I think, so, you know, if we kind of take his argument in parts about what marketing land is, I think the first argument he makes is a 
well-worn argument about ad agencies and marketing departments in general, which is the people who work in marketing, the people who work in ad agencies are urban, educated, affluent people who care about pop culture and about high culture and local. Like they, they are not normal people is always the argument, which sometimes gets articulated as they're not real people. Right. And it's like, no, they're real people. They're just a specific kind of person that may mm -hmm. or may not match the target audience. And so, you know, one of the reasons that some agencies do great work on certain brands is because the people who work at that agency are the aspirational target for that brand. And they they love it. They love the, you know, people who work on Nike love Nike. They are outdoorsy and athletic and they care about sport and all of that stuff. And, and they care about fashion and they care about culture. Like they are the audience for Nike. And, you know, one of the things that I laugh about is when I was like interning creative assistant at Wine and Kennedy, they had the Microsoft business and there were a bunch of people that they had hired from BBDO West who had been working on Apple until Apple went back to Shiat Day and they hire them and move them up to Portland to work on Microsoft. And there was no more demoralizing account move that I could imagine for creative directors than to go from working on Apple to start working on Microsoft. Yeah, it's because, actually mean. Yes. <laughs> so the, it's mean to the client. Like, I mean, it is yeah, mean to the Microsoft to client. Yeah. <laughs> it's mean to everybody. It was demoralizing for the creative directors. It was probably not great for the, I don't know. I think that, I think the Microsoft folks thought we're going to get some of that creative juice. And it was like, not, no, they don't actually want to give it to you. They, they have hate to, you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They don't like your product. Yeah. And so, you know, he, he makes a, a heck of a statement, which is marketing folk don't look, think, love, or live like ordinary people. And I'm like, wow, if they don't look, think, love, or live like ordinary people, then what are they? They must not be actual humans. Um, <laughs> like, this is, this is a bold statement to make. And I think then he kind of softens it slightly and says, well, you know, maybe it's not just the bubble you live in that you live in, <laughs> whatever, you live in... Uh, the you live in Islington in London or you live in in um the Lower East Side in in New York City or something or Brooklyn Heights it's that you work in a bubble you work with all these other people who also are not like real people but the other thing he says and i actually think there's some truth in this is that it's not just aspirational in the sense of like i don't know these are some sort of elevated humans of some kind, but they are also aspirational for the organizations that hire them. He describes it as a fake world conjured into existence by marketers' distaste for the real one. And like this does make me think about the problem of ad agencies' high overhead. And like it's expensive to operate an ad agency for a variety of reasons, but one of them is you need a cool office with cool furniture. Mm -hmm. And a cool conference room and tech and a keg and what you know whatever yeah. in order to make the client who come who would rather come visit you than have you come visit them in their cubicle farm, they want to come hang out in a cool creative place. You're the cool creatives, right? Let's be cool and creative together in a cool creative place. And so I think there is some truth about like creating this artifice that is actually unnecessary to the project of creating good advertising or good marketing. I mean, it's nice to have, but you don't need it. Right. And then he takes it one more step and basically says that research is culpable in all of this because we enable the artifice. 
And he says that we that research does this by, quote, serving up just enough reality to make aspirational marketing seem connected to something true and present, but not enough to let reality penetrate too far into the machinations of the marketer. And also, like, I mean, yes, sometimes true. <laughs> sometimes true. I mean, I have personally worked on research projects in the last year where I gave them some real hard reality and they were actually actively angry at me. And the they here is an agency. They were actively angry at me for being so clear about the reality for the people they wanted to address. And because it wasn't a pretty reality, it was actually really scary. And they were really pissed off at me about that. They were trying to find the silver lining, right? And it's like, well... (laughs) <laughs> the silver lining is over here. You want to go this way, but that's not the way of the silver lining. The silver lining is over this right. way. You know, you're asking these people who are in danger to help other people who are in danger. And I thought we were living in the culture that says, you know, put on your own oxygen mask before helping others. Like you need to help these people first before they can help the people you want them to help. And also what a convoluted strategy. But but setting that aside and I've burned that bridge now officially, but like the, the, <laughs> that does happen. It does happen where I've also had brands who, when we were doing ethnographic research, decided they didn't like the look of a particular woman that we were interviewing. This was for a project about a consumer packaged good. And we had to recast the interview so that the client felt like it looked like what they were hoping for. So the real audience is a 35 to 45 year old woman running a household, but what they wanted you know, with enough money to afford to buy this thing off the shelf instead of making it at home. And what they wanted was the 25-year-old girl living in sectioned housing, (laughs) effectively, because she was pretty and young, and she was still using her money to go buy this thing. And it's like, okay, you you know, you didn't like the woman who was a little overweight, you do like the 25-year-old, so that's who we're going to do the ethnography with, because I just want to get this over with. (laughs) And that happens. That happens in research a lot. But I would just say, like, I don't meet a lot of researchers who are like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to serve you some chewed up baby food for you to digest because that's what you want. Most of them want to tell you the truth. And they would like to tell you a hard truth because inside of a hard truth is a really exciting opportunity. But ad agencies don't like hard truths most of the time. And marketers, frankly, like them even less. Because Mm -hmm. hard truths require them to do something they don't usually do. And what they want to do is what they usually do. Yeah. They have a playbook and they want the playbook to be validated. They don't want to have to rewrite it. They don't want to have to pay somebody to rewrite it. They don't want to be surprised and change plans and go into their boss's office and say, okay, I know for the first year I was pitching this thing, but now we're going to go this other way because I have this research. Yes. But I think you were starting to get to one of the things, though, where this argument starts to kind of fall apart a little bit. And like, coming in, he's coming in hot, like, it's a take, (laughs) you know, like, we can quibble about parts of the take and who's really responsible. But then he tries to say, the reason, I guess, the causal chain here is researchers enable this magical thinking, and they do it by not getting in person with real folks. And then he shows a chart. He makes a claim and then he goes on in his in his three ways argument that says that we're removed, that strategists are removed from culture, removed from people, removed from the constituency, the audiences, all that stuff. So they put this chart in from the future of stat- strategy um, survey that work conducts annually. And what I was laughing about is if you just look at the chart without reading it, which is how charts are designed, the chart at the top that says 
the the research that is conducted the least by respondents is in-person qualitative research, ethnography, focus groups, and interviews. Oh, okay, that's compelling. That supports his case. When you look at the numbers to the right of each bar, it's 21% don't conduct that research, which means 79% of respondents do conduct that research, which by if in any survey, if you got 79%, that is like off the charts, home run, yay. Mm-hmm. I'm like, shocked it's that much. As a researcher, I'm shocked it's nearly 80% who do in-person qualitative research in 2023. Yeah, like it almost doesn't feel ac- like it can't be that much. But that's the report they're reporting, and it goes exactly counter to like how could how could just maybe the work people are going to be mad at us, but how could social listening and reading magazines be lower? Well, but but it's not lower; <laughs> it's higher, right? What what social listening is saying is that it's eighty. Oh yeah, you're, you're correct. Even I'm it. turned around on the way, on the yeah. presentation of the bar chart. Uh, let, let's let's just pause here for a moment and just say, uh, friends who may be watching the YouTube version of this, uh, we've put the chart up here. It, it is showing you a bar chart that reflects the answer, we don't conduct this type of research. And the, the, the proportion, like, so it's ranked in the percentage of people who most don't do a thing. <laughs> <laughs> Which is already specious and super, like, I, I am shocked that work decided to go with this with this version of a chart. I think if Richard wants to make the case that researchers are presenting altered visions of reality to people, this is a pretty good case study in showing an altered vision of reality. I think the, yeah, I think the example of like, all of our charts will be presented as double negatives. I think yeah. it's pretty <laughs> like, okay, Richard, you're on to something. I, I agree with you. <laughs> But what it's really saying is a minimum of 80% of of marketers are doing some kind of research into their audience. Yeah. The thing they're doing the least is, frankly, the most time-consuming and the most expensive, which is in-person qualitative research. But I think it's this – I don't think it's unreasonable to think that 80% have done some of this in the last year. I believe that they've done some interviews. I believe that they've done some focus groups and ethnography. Now, I'm going to be a researcher for a minute here and say, well, there's in-person and then there's in-person, right? There's the in-person that we send a research company out to go do. And then there's the in-person that we either attended in person mm-hmm. or went and did ourselves. And very few organizations are set up to do their own research. They have insights teams that hire research firms. So I'll I'll quibble slightly about that. But I would bet that most brands have done something in person in the last year. But again, it's the more expensive, more time consuming, harder to execute thing. And so it does not surprise me that it's the one where one in five are saying they don't do it. But four out of five are saying that they do. Right. And that is a number that has been working for Trident for 40 years like that. (laughs) Four four (laughs) out of five dentists. (laughs) It's really popular. Yes. But I think the other thing is there is another part of this, which is online qualitative research in prens, virtual ethnography, focus groups, interviews. Now, virtual is a loaded word. Mm-hmm. Virtual just means asynchronous and conducted online and or done online. So long before the pandemic, most of our work had shifted to that because it solved two of the problems of in-person qualitative research, which is travel time and expense. And so we could get into fields faster because we didn't have to physically get there. 
And we could also schedule things more lightly. We didn't have to like, you know, when you set up a qualitative research project for in-person research, you have to set up literal hours within which you are going to conduct this research. You have to schedule it ahead of time. You can't be flexible about when interviews are going to take place because you only have the room at the focus group facility for so long, or you can only get so many hours of people's time at their home or their place of business. If I do a digital diary and a follow-up interview, then they can do it from wherever, whenever, over the course of several days, and then we can have a conversation when it's convenient for them. So I think that number is actually an extremely encouraging one, not just for my business, but for the problem he's trying to solve, which is actually getting engaged in reality. I know that there is this belief that it is better to go be in person, and I do share it. I really do. But I think there is also something that happens when I'm not walking into someone's home that actually opens up the aperture a little bit. Yeah. If, if I'm not coming to visit them, they don't clean their house. They don't do their hair. They don't put on makeup. They just show me what's in their house. Like, show me what's in your bathroom. Show me what's in your pantry. They'll just take a picture of it. right? And it's a mess. And the kids are running around screaming. And all of that is happening because I'm not there. And they don't have to control their environment for a guest. So there are trade-offs either way. Yeah. But this is this chart is is a hell of a thing. I'm gonna stop yeah. sharing my screen. And, right and even the even for that online, the the virtual ethnography focus groups interviews that you point out, that number is close to ninety. Yeah. So if I take the the combination of those two things, it's like we're doing a hell of a lot of qual. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I mean you can we can debate the merits of like true IHUTs or or like visits or and those things and i agree there's right. valuable there's more context clues you get but there are positive things you can get from some of those virtual pieces which some of the benefits of the virtual pieces like using diaries and things people don't have to have the answers right then in real time mm-hmm. they they can think about a prompt and come back to it you know if you're doing like online communities they can come back and answer later versus like while you're there putting them on the spot or in a focus group where they're afraid to say something because the alpha person is like dominating the conversation at times i mean we don't even have to that's a whole other episode probably but yeah. <laughs> don't get me started on how that's also kind of a thing that doesn't really happen if it's a good moderator but anyway yeah but the, yeah yeah, yeah. But, you know yeah but th- there there is a lot of research happening here my only question is as always when i see a chart that's based on a survey. My move is to say I have follow-up questions. Right. So you're reading print magazines and newspapers. Uh, you know uh, what would that be? Like eighty-four percent, eighty-seven percent are engaged in social listening. Ninety-six percent are looking at trend data and transaction data. Ninety-eight percent are doing competitor analysis. Ninety-nine percent are reading online sources, news and information sites, blogs, listening to podcasts. Googling. My question is about what. <laughs> are, are you are you just doing that in general? You're keeping up on the trends, or are you reading specifically about your industry? Are you actively trying to, you know, like a, a thing that you know th- that I do when we work on a project is I go find like the Reddit community for right. that audience, and I follow that that thread and and look at the kinds of things that people are talking about there. I find a book about the history of that thing, a kind yeah. of cultural history of that thing. I read the news about it, but it's specifically about that thing. Years ago, I worked on NASCAR. I'm not a NASCAR fan. I mean, I now appreciate it because I worked on it and had to spend time with people who were. But like the way that I did that was by 
yes, absolutely, going to NASCAR races and hanging out with NASCAR fans. But it was also setting up a Google alert for everything related to NASCAR, interviewing you know people from the teams and the tracks, joining some Facebook groups of NASCAR fans, <laughs> talking to people I knew who were into NASCAR. You know, all of those things were very focused on NASCAR. But but I know, having walked around agencies, <laughs> that sometimes what they're doing is they're just like scrolling through cool portfolio sites and looking at the latest cool stuff on whatever cool stuff blog there is these days. And or like, looking at award show books to try to see what, what kind of ideas jump off the page. Yeah, Exactly. Listening That's to fine. marketing podcasts, right. not podcast about NASCAR, right? Like right. The, and so I do have a question about that. But even if that's in the mix, but they're doing the other stuff too, like, that's, that's great. Like, this is telling me that actually, there's, there's a real effort being made. Now, what's the volume? How much are they spending against it? How many hours are they putting against it? I don't know. I can't tell any of that from this data. It's like, if, if the answer is I did it at least once this year, then yeah, great. so the chart is, is, a sub result of the question, how often do you engage in the following research practices? And this is the do not conduct this type of research part yes. of that. So it's bottom, you know, bottom box. It's bottom box. Yeah. That is a really good point, Adam. That is a really good point. So we I don't would love know. to see bottom, bottom two. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, what I'd love <laughs> to see is, is, is what's in the top box. Like yeah. we do this all the time. Like, assuming that this was a Likert scale question, I don't know, maybe it's, it was a binary question of we do it, we don't do it. I doubt it. But let's let's pretend. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I mean, this this suggests that taken together, everybody is doing some amount of, at the very least, competitive analysis. At the very least, they're looking at the competitive set and getting a map of the of the category. And your your point is good. Just because they're doing this research at times doesn't mean it's relevant or high quality. And I think that's what Huntington is saying as well. Like when you get into his three tools, which we should jump into now, especially when it gets to narcissism, which is his first tool that he has most tolerated. It's like, okay, so what he says is, you know, the first, the first misplaced tool that marketers use that are mm -hmm. keeping the bubble and the artifice in place is narcissism that... It protects marketers from hearing or seeing what's going on in people's lives. It keeps the focus on their own business. So what he's saying above, directly above this is there's not enough quality research going on. And then here he's saying, no, we're too focused on the business and not enough focus on what's happening outside. And I'm not sure you can make that case. Again, I'll say as a researcher, we get a lot of feedback from clients about discussion guides and questionnaires. And the stuff they are often most interested in is how do we stack up against our competitors? And they have a predetermined idea about who their competitors are. And one of my clients um, who I adore is always the reality check on that, where he's like, the biggest competitor is doing nothing. <laughs> right. But the, you know, and, and frequently like, Okay, there's your competitor set. And then there's like the choice menu that your customers actually have before them. And so one of the options is do nothing. One of the options is choose you. One of the options is choose something else that's not strictly speaking in your category. 
or choose a competitor that you think you're not competing against because they're a much higher or lower price point or they have a greater or more limited array of products or, you know, they distribute online versus in store or, you know, whatever it is. And so I do think there's a certain amount of tail wagging the dog of like they're imagining the chart they want to show to the business team later on which is like how we stack up against our competitors. And so they focus a lot on those types of questions. That does happen. Yeah. Good researchers will say, okay, but we need the context for why they're making those selections. If, yeah. So what else is going on? Qual or, or quant. It's not a three question survey. That's just which of our competitors, how do we, <laughs> okay, how do you no. like us compared to our competitors? Thank you. Mm-hmm. Like, oh my God, there's room for both. There's room for nuance and tucking those questions in about, the competitor, the known competitors and trying to find those not known competitors yeah. or alternate solutions, the comparables. The the note I made on that part of the piece where he said, regardless of the method, we spend all our time and effort asking people about our brand and competition. So there's no opportunity for people to talk about themselves. My note on that was this is called doing it wrong. Like, right, right. If that is what's happening in the research you receive, Richard, then you need to hire a new research partner because they're doing it wrong. In fact, we're we're available, Richard. Yeah, I I agree. I think if you're not getting any of that connection, what what this might be an indictment of is Sachi more than well, <laughs> more so than maybe. I, I think the other thing, just you know, thinking about my time at Digitas, is like we did not have research budgets to go get to go do our own research. I mean, I, we did guerrilla stuff all the time little shout out to Enrico Gotti, who is always willing to go do a man on the street interview. Um, thank you for doing that. Um, but like, we frequently received research, right, that that the client had commissioned from someplace else. And a lot of times, because I had been, you know, at Holland Partners for four years prior to that, and then um, OTX before it got by, bought by Ipsos uh, for about a year and a half prior to that, like, I would get these decks and go, really, this is what you're giving me to work with. Like the numbers don't add up to a hundred, kind of kind of a problem on, on on these decks. So I can imagine that what he's receiving from the marketing team is unimpressive to him uh, from from the client's marketing team. But I will also tell you, as a researcher who works directly for marketing teams, marketing teams edit down our decks to the stuff they think is the most important or tells the story they want to tell. Right. And so I have no idea what the actual research company fully did unless I get a deck that's on their template. <laughs> if right. I get the if I get the hundred page deck on their template, I got their research. Right. If I got and the I look 15 for the word deck. I look for the word summary. And if that's on yeah. the cover, it's like, no, give me the other one. Yes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> if exactly. it's a summary for directors or executives or managers, like, nope, give me yeah. give me the raw stuff. And I would also just say, if you're getting that kind of data, my guess is mostly what you are receiving is survey data. And you are receiving probably brand trackers. Because those kinds of things of like, how are we stacking up against the competitors? What are the brand attributes most associated with us? You know, how my propensity to buy, uh, my enthusiasm about the brand, whatever, all of those things would be in a brand tracker. Those tend to be quite focused on how are we doing and not as much on customer context. Again, results may vary depending on which research company you engage to do your brand trackers and how you design them. But that's his what he's calling narcissism, I would just call garbage in, garbage out. Like someone designed a bad study. And if that was commissioned by the agency, then that's the agency's fault. If it was commissioned by the marketer, that's the marketer's fault. If it's just a bad research company, get a better one. There are lots of great researchers out there. <laughs> so, and, you know, here's two of them right here. But the, <laughs> it, they're, 
<laughs> there's plenty of great talented researchers. So I kind of look at that and go, all right, whatever, you're just doing it wrong. So let's move on to tool number two, which is what he talks about with segmentation. So I guess this goes into, we talked about this in our last conversation, I think about people hate personas because personas, boil or it, so I call them avatars, what he's talking about, where they get the alliterative title that's like, you know, <laughs> Bonnie, the bargain hunter. And we diminish them. He's, he says acronym, but I think what he means is the alliterative title, which I agree. Those are terrible. Those those are not helpful. But I don't think creating segments of your audience, of your current customers, of the market in general is overall bad. I think, the, again, he makes some assertions that I, I know you have a, a particular bone with one of them, but I'm not sure I think it's true. It's not true. I mean, he, he starts off talking about how agencies just sit around twiddling their thumbs waiting for the most recent segmentation, which is hilarious to me because that <laughs> means you're sitting around for like two years because brands don't refresh their segmentations that often. There are two reasons to refresh your segmentation. One is something about the culture or the category has changed significantly enough that it's worth it to go find out what's different. The other is you got a new CMO and they don't like the old one. But that's why it's about every two years. <laughs> so, but yeah, other, it kind of roughly companies... lines up with that duration, it's, that, that <laughs> yeah. tenure. Yeah, exactly. But even if it's not that, like things do change. New new entrants come into the category. Something about, I mean, I, I like an example would be, gosh, coming up on like twenty years ago, I did some work for a Sci Fi Channel, and we asked people if they considered themselves to be Sci Fi fans, and everyone would say no. And then we would ask them, "What are your favorite movies and TV shows?" And they would list Star Wars and Terminator and Harry Potter and what X Files and whatever, right? Star Trek. And so, yeah, you're Sci Fi fans, but what you think a Sci Fi fan is is yes. not how you see yourself. Right now, if you were to ask people, "Do you consider yourself to be a Sci Fi fan?" Plenty of people would say yes. Because it's no longer the guy covered in crumbs in his mom's attic playing video games and watching horror movies. Like, that's not the sci-fi fan anymore. Oh, I feel um, seen. Except for my mom's <laughs> attic. But the crumbs, accurate. Horror movies, definitely accurate. Hurt, hurtful. Um, that, that's me on a sick day. Yeah. Movies. <laughs> um, but like, the so first of all. Let's not be histrionic about how we're constantly waiting around for the latest segmentation. You are not. No. You're lucky if the client has a segmentation, to be honest with you. And here's why. Segmentation studies are expensive. They are a six-figure project. And time-consuming. And time-consuming. And resource-intensive. Yes. So they are not something clients are doing constantly. And also, people actually don't change that frequently. They do change. Culture changes, categories shift, people's behavior evolves, but that doesn't happen all the time. It happens slowly at first and then kind of all at once, and you need to catch it when it has fully changed. But also, Farah, <laughs> what he's saying is that it, before he gets to here, he's saying agencies don't do enough research to understand the customers outside of the business. And then in this part, he's saying- <laughs> But then they do too much segmentation studies. <laughs> Their agencies are guilty of waiting around for new information about the customers. And it's like, wait, which is it? Which of neither of those are true, by the way, because the chart disproves the first part and reality disproves the second part. I just, it, 
they yes. both can't be true and they both can't be bad. And yeah, there are bad segmentations. There are bad personas. There are bad avatars. There are bad marketers. There are marketers that are too focused on the business and not enough on culture or cultural connections or insights related to that. But yes. geez, like, I don't think that is means that everybody is hiding with their head in the sand. Yes. I, I think the other thing about this is what he seems to think that segmentations do or do now. I'm not sure if he thinks that they used to be better. But he <laughs> says something that is quite simply untrue about segmentations. And again, because it would be it would be resource intensive and cost prohibitive for it to be true. He says segmentations are not universal, but category specific as if someone changes identity when they stop thinking about broadband and start shopping for food. And I'm like, first you of all, totally do. <laughs> you absolutely do. Change your identity. Those things the same way. When I shop for food, hopefully I have choices. Now, if I live in a food desert, I have very few choices. If I live in a food oasis, I have lots and lots of choices. Yeah. But when I have a broadband decision to make, I have one choice. One. It's not a choice. I just have to sign up with Optimum or Comcast or whatever, unless I want to pay to get fiber brought into my home. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes you might be lucky and have a second choice, like Quest or whatever they're called. It might be in your market Maybe. trying to break in and offering some deal yeah. that's too good to be true. Yeah. So he he's right technically because he says they don't change identity. But I do think they change role. They change the way they process information, the consideration, how many choices they even want varies. Like I don't want yeah. five choices of broadband provider, man. Two is great. Yeah. But food, if we're talking about a grocery shelf, like, okay, I need fewer jelly options. I don't need 19. I need three. Yes. So I don't know if he's trying to argue that they should be universal, that we should be looking for like constants in people's identities, but that would be impossible for a variety of reasons. First of all, that's just not how people are. There are some things that I'm incredibly cheap about. And then there are some things that it's like, I don't care. It's $500. Totally. Have Here's my money. <laughs> and <laughs> you know, and the, the things that you are like that with are different than the things that I am like that with. Yes. And it is because we're both individual beautiful snowflakes that have our own history and legacy and what we value as far as time maybe of doing extra exactly. research or interviewing a provider or making those phone yeah. calls or looking at those websites. Yes. As we discussed, I really like gear. I know. Like if you, I could buy, buy a new microphone every episode. A new microphone could. or a, a preamp or a cable or a light or some you know a any kind of a saw. I have so many saws. I've got a miter <laughs> saw, I got a table saw, I got a jigsaw, I got a I have exactly saw. one saw. I got a really nice uh, Japanese handsaw. Very good. Very good stuff. Um, but like, I like hobbies because they I can buy tools. Then there's other stuff where I'm like, I refuse to pay that. <laughs> like, I, will not, I will not pay $7 for that thing. It is worth no more than $5 to me. <laughs> like, I I, so anyway, segmentations are not actually supposed to be about people's quote unquote identities. They are supposed to be about the kind of confluence of their attitudes and beliefs and their behavior in the category. If I'm Nike, I'm not responsible for your computer purchasing behavior. I'm responsible for your apparel and sports-related behavior. Yeah. And there are companies, there are ad agencies and research groups like nonfiction, who I know I like, I think I like their work a little more than you do, that specialize. I just don't understand these... how they how they make money, but that, that's yeah. a different story. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I do, but they don't seem to want to say it. <laughs> they specialize in these broader ethnographies of subcultures and mm -hmm. or category interest. And those are really interesting. And if Wyden Kennedy produces one on like streetwear, I'm going to 
subscribe and buy it and download and listen to the TED talk. Like, yeah, but that's not really practical if you're selling cookies all the time. Like every piece of research does not have to be presented as a microsite that has a video by an Academy Award winner. No. Like it can just be a PowerPoint deck that says, hey, when they're in, this is roughly who the person is that buys these cookies. And we can tell that because this is where, these are the types of grocery stores and these are the neighborhoods, these are the zip codes they're in. And when they're at the shelf, these are the three questions they ask about cookies. And the other thing is like, he's decided to pick a bone with segmentation specifically. But there's a lot of different kinds of research. As I mentioned already, there are brand tracking studies, there are concept tests, there are pricing studies, there are shopper marketing projects. Like there's so many different types of research for different types of questions. And so segmentations may not be the answer to the questions he's trying to get answers to. But the other thing about it is there are segmentations that are meant for product development. And there are segmentation studies that are meant for media buying, frankly. And they are often not the same. The segments you define for building products are not the same segments you would define for buying media because it's not how you buy media. Right. right? How I think about designing a product is about people's needs, met and unmet, and their current behaviors and all of that stuff as owners of the product and users of the product. But then I want to take that group of people and segment them again based on what kind of media they consume so that I can advertise to them in the places that they are most likely to see the advertising. Two different purposes and, frankly, two different methodologies. And you can try to jam them together, but it's uncomfortable for everybody. The... Other thing he talks about, you know, so there's 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 so many ways of engaging with people and the types of stuff that nonfiction does. I also, you know, think it's great. I would love to be able to do more of those types of projects. Uh, I would love to figure out how to sustain myself on only those projects. But the real interesting thing to me about those types of projects, because we do them also, is like they tend to be commissioned as, frankly, show ponies. They exist. They are commissioned in large part to make the new CMO look great. Yeah. They are often commissioned so that you can have something PRable. You you can invest in this research and then use it as PR because you produce this cool piece of content. That's right. Or you can roadshow it in your sales calls to your retail partners or whatever. And so we we have done things like this in the past. And they have a place. But like that's not the only reason to do segmentation. It's not the only reason to do any of the other types of studies that you might do. The other thing, though, that he talks about is the idea that like they insist the population with all its diversity and complexity can be divided into seven groups of people, maybe fewer, rarely more. And look, no quantitative researcher worth their salt believes that actually all people can be roughly, it can be divided roughly into seven groups. What we do is try to prioritize for you. The other thing is, Once you get out past six, seven, maybe eight groups, it starts to become so granular that it's hard to say statistically that those are groups. Or even more importantly, for most brands that you could even buy against them or or reach them. Right, right. Or that you would. Yes. And so we might show you in a, you know, a a cluster chart, here are six clusters, and then we're going to map those against like share of wallet or share of voice or share of whatever. And like tell you these are the three that we think you ought to prioritize because they're the easiest to buy media against or they're the ones with the greatest propensity to buy or whatever. And look, the segmentation study is, does not exist solely to like 
clarify the whole universe of human experience within your category. Yeah. It is there to help you prioritize your marketing spend. And it's also <laughs> not exist. <laughs> I think his assertion is kind of like, oh, they take the 330 million Americans and they boil them into six persona types or segments. No, no, no. We're talking, this is about 500,000 people that we've carved up that are your primary target. Mm-hmm. And we're cutting them up into three groups that it's like, here's what these people want. Here's what people that seem like these people want. And I, I don't think it's well, like, there's only so many motivations presented, for buying a thing. Yeah. But <laughs> I mean, that brings us to generational marketing because yes. I, I agree with him that generation, I think, as we've been talking about for over mm-hmm. a year, it's stupid. I think that, ha- yeah, that is what we've been talking about. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and we yes, I think what, where he kind of winds up is saying generational marketing is, what does he call it? Uh, the end it of the level, end level boss. boss. Yeah. And I'm like, <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> He's not wrong game, about bro. that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, but anyway, like <laughs> final boss is actually what we call these things exactly. uh, typically. Yeah. But in any event. Um, <laughs> um, I thought it might be like a UK US translation. Maybe, maybe it is. Maybe it is. But like he, he calls this the stinking edifice of generational marketing. And oh man, hard agree. Yeah. Like the whole the whole point of this show right, is that it's yeah. that it's the worst of all things. Now, I'm going to go ahead and say that I feel like he must be a listener of this show. This this piece came out last fall. We had been at this for quite some time. I had already been on the record saying that this is basically astrology for marketers. And he says it should be given as much credence in sensible organizations as astrology. Yeah. So shout out to you, Richard, for listening to the show. Thank you. In Uh, fact, Richard, if you would like to join as a guest, we would love to have you. Either We would love to have you, yes. Dive deeper into this debate. We can argue about this some more. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Yes. But I think I think there is something interesting about because I feel like we've we've now had some conversations where like Pew Research has basically said we're going to like step away from generations as a way of thinking about groups of people in general. Everything. <laughs> yes. And clearly we've been t- sort of charting the progress of like, OK, so millennials were young. They were in their 20s for a really long time. Uh, they were in their 20s, well into their 30s. And now that they're hitting 40, they're just turning 30. <laughs> right? <laughs> and so like, there's kind of a loosey-goosiness. And, and like, and also, we, we've changed the parameters of what their birth years were originally. It was like 80 to 2002 or something. Don't and now it's pay any attention to that 82 to 96 or whatever. All these all these people born in 1980 who were convinced that they were millennials. Now, now no longer millennials. Sorry, you're going to be ignored like the rest of us. Too bad. Yeah. <laughs> but they, that feels like a thing that is like waning in its cultural relevance. And yet, what he says in the final sentence of that paragraph is, and yet, we continue to indulge generational marketers and the research companies and consultancies that prop them up. And I know it's true because in our last episode, we looked at ads that literally put generations in the creative. Yeah. Meet the Jennifers, Gen X, Gen Y, and Gen Z. So I agree with him that that this is a problem. It is l- the laziest form of segmentation. I it's wish not his even true segmentation. was about this. Yes. Because I think this makes the case much more f- strongly and in a more compelling way than the two pieces, the two points he makes above it. Like, I, I agree. I don't know. Marketers do should be focused on their business. And yes. I don't think segmentation is the enemy. Bad segmentation is the enemy. Yes. But but this this is even where I would I would kind of say I don't really think 
that slicing your survey responses by age brackets is actually a segmentation. And anybody who actually conducts segmentation studies, I think, would also bristle at the idea that just doing cuts by age is a segment. That's not no. how segmentations are done. It's it's a more complicated form of statistical analysis. Regression analysis gets used. I don't know what any of these things mean, but I I'm would, told. I would argue it takes at least <laughs> two factors to create yes, a segment. It takes at least two <laughs> factors, yes. You, Maybe you, three. You, I don't know. Ideally, you would have at least three data points. One would be demographic. And probably several would be demographic, but like, let's take it as one might be demographic. One will be behavioral and another will be attitudinal. And like, then we'll sort of triangulate and look at those things. But a lot of what they do when they get the survey responses back is just look for correlations. Like if we look at it this way against this question, what happens? If we look at it this way against this question, what happens? What he's describing is not a segmentation. It's a crosstab. (laughs) Like it's just a cut by age. That is my specialty. If you listen to my new show, Crosstabs, you'll hear all about it in the context of politics. There's my plug. I set you up. Thank you very much. (laughs) But yeah, like it's just a crosstab. That's it would be the same thing as like our segmentation is men versus women. That's not a segment either. Like it's just there should be a point in his article that's like gender based segments. They're the worst. They're the worst. Absolutely. Also agree. So, you know, I agree with him that doing that is what I would just sort of call like lazy segmentation. And he says that this was always a charlatan's business and I couldn't agree more. Yeah, I agree. And it's like, Mm -hmm. I think what he's arguing for is the same thing we would, which is like, we want good research. We want to derive and develop good insights that are strong. We want to have the time and space to ask these hard questions and do the analysis to get to real answers. His argument comes off as if he's saying researchers are putting in the effort to uphold a fiction And I don't think that's what's happening. I think more and more as I work with agencies, it's more like we don't have the budget. We don't have the time. The client's not going to pay us to do it. They're not going to let us ask the questions. They don't have time. It's a rush. The CMO just got hired, so they have to do something right away. The CMO thinks he's going to get fired, so we have to do something right away. Mm -hmm. Well, and I have worked in agencies where we had no research resources and none provided to us by the client. And so we created our own personas to work have something to work against and we created them out of desk research publicly available data the research website we created them out of talking to people on the street we created them out of even looking at what the other advertisers in the category were doing and trying to deconstruct them like who do they think they're talking to what is the use case they're imagining and and just to have something to write to something to design for and the thing about creating advertising is it's not really for the marketer it's for the target audience we're trying to create something for them to feel some connection to what the marketer is trying to sell yeah and we absolutely have to understand them and the yes, content. we have to understand them somehow. And if that means sometimes we're making up pretty stories because we have no resources to do anything else, then, well, that that's the best we got. And right. so I, I don't actually even necessarily fault ad agencies for this. Over the years, they have been squeezed out of the research process and squeezed of any excess, excess budgets that they might be able to use for research. And they're not trusted to do research because clients believe that they'll game the research to get the result that they want. And all they really want is to totally. win a lion at can which is like the dumbest, laziest story ever about ad agencies, even though sometimes it's true. But like, (laughs) you know, I I think that the thing about what he's also getting to is like, 
the generational marketing thing props up other advertising tropes, particularly about young consumers that have existed for a really long time. That young people are inherently optimistic, that young people love change, that young people want change, that young people care about the world around them and they're global and they're digital and they're optimistic and they're you know into sustainability and into human rights and into all these things. And digital natives. Digital natives may or may not be any of those things when to actually start getting into segmentation studies, <laughs> but like like true ones. And so I agree with him that I think these these are lazy con jobs that prop up stories that people want to believe because like Rose talked about, they want to believe good things about their own children. People in midlife want to believe there is a future <laughs> beyond themselves. Yeah. And so we're hopeful that you're hopeful because we're not. <laughs> like, right. Or we know the and, truth about these this product or category and we need to know yes. that somebody else sees it differently or has hope for it. But I, I also think like he's overstating the case about the importance of generational marketing in marketing. Like it has been a while since I have seen a marketing deck that actually tries to break the internal marketing deck, let's put it that way, that tries to break things down by generations. So yeah. I think once again, we're back to the problem of resources, which is if he feels like ad agencies are overly reliant on generational marketing, those are agencies that are not doing any primary research or benefiting from any primary research. They're reading the the Intuit trend report about how Gen Z feels about finance. Correct. It might be his agency, what they're sharing with be. him. Yeah. But but I you know, I, I I do want to acknowledge that like ad agencies are squeezed out of this. They they are not active participants in research a lot of the time and they don't get to conduct it on their own. And I think they've generally speaking lost muscle memory for how to do it well. And they are dependent on public sources. And public sources like using this because there's nothing proprietary about a generational cut of the data. It's an easy thing for them to release without sharing any inside data. Yeah. So in stakeholder, in uh, earnings calls, it's an easy thing to cite. So yep. So he has some interesting prescriptions. I'm not sure that I think that they're totally... Um, actionable or go far enough, I guess, actually, is my problem with it is I'm not sure that they go far enough. Like he, yeah. he's trying to get people out of the building into actual interaction with the actual audience. He's trying to get... And that's you something know, you and I talked about on my other show with mm -hmm. you as a guest talking about going on walkabouts and, and yes. deep diving. Like we have to do that. So... Yeah. And, and I think like, you know, he tries to split the, the difference a little bit. Let's go broad or go deep, but not mess about in the middle. And I think, no, go deep. Like, honest to God, just the yeah. deeper you it understand like something, that's what he wants to do. Yeah. the more insightful you'll be. And I do think that talking about real people and their stories is the thing that if you want to be a smart strategist in marketing and branding or a smart strategist anywhere on the business side, in politics, wherever, you have to get into contact with real people and their lived experiences, as much as that phrase is overused. The fictional persona drives me nuts. And it does not get us anywhere we actually want to go. It's fine if it's all we can do, but we should be trying to do better. I think we should debate that on another episode because I, I I use that. And I think it's valuable. The, the, the made up personas? Well, not made up. I mean, they're based in data, but well, but that's what I'm saying. Like, I, I think there are a lot of agencies that kind of like read a couple Google pieces and a trend report from Mr. Y or whatever, and that's close enough. And so yeah, no, no, no. Yeah. 
But I think, you know, the the real thing is, um, Richard, come on, let's let's talk about this a little bit more. Let's 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 get into like, why'd you write this? Did, did you get a bad report? <laughs> That's exactly how it reads. He was like making notes during a terrible presentation. And he's like, I'm exactly. going to write to work. Exactly. Well, he's a regular contributor to work and his pieces are generally interesting and good. I, I think like the interesting thing to me is that if people in marketing are regarding uh, uh, generations as any kind of segmentation, I don't know what we're doing. All right. I think we've beaten this horse to death. into into the ground. Um, <laughs> next time we'll talk about something else. All right. Well, I think we nailed it. Yep. Yeah, nothing more to say about that. We, we will obviously include the article link in the show notes. And uh, thank you all for listening to us rant. In the Demo is written and hosted by Farah Bostic and Adam Pierno, with support from The Difference Engine, edited by Allison Preisinger and Amp Studio, with production support from Ashley Darrington. Music used with permission by Omega Man under the Creative Commons license. Go to InTheDemoPodcast.com for behind-the-scenes research, supporting information, and transcripts. If you'd like to support the show, please rate, review, and share the show with people you think will appreciate it. Thanks for listening.